HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash beer sessions. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, May 19th, 2020. This is a special COVID remote recording, and we're talking with some cool guys. Take it away, Evan. Beer Sessions Radio. We got our intro, and thanks for joining us here. I'm the host. It's uh, HeritageRadioNetwork.org, and you'll be listening to this uh, sometime soon on a podcast. Um, let's go around the room. Everybody introduce themselves. Um, start with Evan. Hey, it's Evan Watson from the Plan B Farm Brewery. All right, up in Hudson Valley. I'm Barry. I'm Barry LeBenz from Kent Falls Brewing in uh, Northwest Connecticut. Great. And Derek? I am Derek from uh, my living room and sometimes Plan B Brewery. And you're the fermented man, too. So I guess I'm the fermented man, too. <laughs> so last year we had a... I've had you all on the show before at least a couple of times, and Derek, we had you on when your Fermented Man book came out. Um, Barry and Evan, last year you guys were at our Slow Grain New York City Brewers Choice event. So I, I was kind of like thinking about that time, because last year we talked a lot about local ingredients. And Barry, we'll start with you. Um, you're, you, you, you have a, a barley, Endeavor barley, that you've been making pills with, and I noticed that you're making a lot more pills. So tell us how that, that's going uh, how that got started for you guys? Uh, it's going great. So Endeavor is actually uh, one of the two main barleys that we use. Uh, it comes, we get it grown in New York and then malted over at Valley Malt in Hadley, Mass. And uh, we brew a lot of our farmhouse beers and our pilsners with it. Um, There's a really nice kind of light clover sort of honey character uh, that we dig for those beers. And uh, the rest of our malt comes from Thrall Family Malt in uh, – northern connecticut who grows synergy barley so all of our malt at this point is locally grown and kind of divide which beers we want by style so the way we kind of started getting into i guess the you know variety specific uh, or really working with our local monsters down to the variety of barley that was being grown was uh through sensory research andrea came down 
and we did, uh, you know, uh, did a sensory analysis on different varieties of barley that she malted all in the same exact way. And we, excuse me, as a brewery kind of gave unanimous answers that we all really liked Endeavor the most. And, you know, once you kind of go that deep into something and, and start working with it uh, at that level and find that you actually have a preference, brewing with other options becomes less palatable or you just aren't as into it. So uh, we really worked and took a couple of years to get the endeavor grown uh, at the scale that we were looking for it uh, and other people were. And it's now a beer that, you know, or a, a malt that we have really great success with. Well, that's great. And Evan, um, you know, a lot of people are turning towards small and local agriculture right now. You know, there's big issues in commodity meat supply chains, for example. Um, you were already making your beer with 100% New York State ingredients. Has this served you well during the pandemic? Uh, are you reading that? Yeah, I read that one. <laughs> um, it seemed like it was from the heart. Um, yeah, all our meat beers have been affected by the supply chain. So no more cocktails, no more uh, <laughs> pork fat, uh, filtered Roush beer. But uh, yeah, I mean, we've always said we we constructed an apocalyptic brewery and hey, guess what happened, you know? Um, we're sourcing our mixed culture from our bees. I have a beautiful culture going right now, uh, a new culture from the spring, our spring honey. And we got a field of Danko rye out there that's, that's just starting to head and it looks really pretty. Um, my hops are the best they've ever been. And I haven't brewed any, so I haven't brewed one batch. I've gone fishing 32 times, and I've brewed zero times since the beginning of this. So I'm set up all right. You know, we we have uh, we've designed a, a brewery that also is aging beers, and and the the rollout of packaging and everything, the process is is much longer than than many people. So our cellar is full. Um, we're just starting to run out of the beer that's been bottle conditioning and aging and. Uh, getting back to brewing uh, this week, but yeah, it's been good. I mean, it's not been good. It sucked, but um, it's, you know, like as far as things go, um, you know, depending on a, a supply chain has proven to be uh, not the, the right choice. I mean, it's never been the right choice for us, but, you know, having a connection to where things come from and small local agriculture now is proving to be more powerful than ever, I think. Yeah, no, I hear you on that one. And then for uh, for Derek, so Derek, back when you wrote the Fermented Man, um, as part of that research, you you said you were discovering or creating some some yeasts and microbes uh, at at Kent Falls when you worked there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, we did a lot of Barry and I did a lot of initial experiments uh, with yeast cultures. I mean, that was a lot of our uh, before the brewery opened. Barry and I basically spent like a summer, fall, and part of a winter homebrewing, essentially, on the farm there, playing around with different yeast cultures, uh, walked around the farm and kind of threw every uh, living, growing thing into a jar, including some bees, apparently, uh, that snuck in there and cultured up a, a, like a unique indigenous culture from the farm that we made a really cool beer with that, I don't know, Barry, is that still kicking around in anything? Yeah, yeah, we, uh, we have it as part of our main house culture at this point right that's awesome yeah so uh yeah i mean that that's uh you know and evan does does that too essentially uh with the honey i mean i think that's that's something any brewer home brewer professional brewer can do kind of 
you know, in any natural setting, find something that grows that's unique to that area and, uh, you know, source that and, and capture uh, the sense of the place through the microbial culture. And berries, uh, I might make a note that those early homebrews, berries homebrews uh, are legend, legendary, <laughs> their quality and their flavor. All over the world. Yeah, in China. I think you just sent a, a pallet to China, right? Fair? It was a whole pallet of the homebrew, yeah. Nice. Well, you guys have been buddies a long time. Um, you know, thinking about what we're going through right now, just to jump to it. So just tell us like how your, your brewery operations are, have changed and, and particularly in terms of customers and, and direct sales. Um, Evan? Yeah, I, I mean, at first, you know, we were just kind of floundering. Like, we had no clue what to do. We'd established some online uh, scenarios already. We had um, Tavor. We worked with Tavor, which is a great online option. They have an app for your, your electronic telephone to uh to communicate with and you can get beer shipped directly to your door they're um they're based in seattle washington or i think yeah or washington rather and um tap room which is a new york based online ordering scenario so we kind of bulked up our you know our distribution to them and you know basically any of our local distributors said they're not taking beer so that we had to figure that out um but we also have a Hive membership, so our membership is kind of another avenue for for releasing and selling beer, and it always has been since the inception of the brewery or shortly thereafter. And um, and now we're we ship beer to China this week. That's true. Um, we also have had people come by the farm and pick up, order online, and UPS now is allowing in New York State for us to. To ship, uh, we're just shipping a case of our barn beer directly to people's doorsteps. Oh, that's great! So now we can, we can do that through the through the postal service as well. So those are our avenues of, as of this moment in terms in terms of um, sales and business. Barry, what about for you at Kemp Falls? So uh, I mean, a lot of the same experiences that Evan uh, has had, where. You know, you go from your tasting room being uh, a major point of customer interaction and sales and revenue and whatnot to, you know, needing to figure out distribution. We self-distribute in Connecticut, so we had open panels to stores and there was, you know, endless amounts of time just spent, like, seeing who was open, seeing how they were operating, you know, and trying to figure out what the right means to, to go would be. All the bars and restaurants were shut down here. So we, we were lucky enough that the biggest change was switching to all package instead of, uh, you know, instead of doing draft as well. So package stores have been really busy and we've thankfully been able to ramp back up to where we're close to normal capacity. Uh, not really quite there yet, but, but getting pretty close. And we've been supported really nicely through our Barnside pickup. You know, one of the things going on what Evan was talking about with his supply chain that we've seen uh, Valley Mall, Andrea started Ground Up Grain, which is uh, doing fresh stone milled flour. So as part of uh, our farm store, we put our eggs that we have from the farm up. We put you know the frozen chickens that we raise in our pastures up for sale for people to come and buy alongside their beer and have now expanded it to other partners, call it, that we've made beers with in the past where we're selling 
ground up grain flour. We're selling, you know, coffee from a local coffee roaster we've made beer with before. And, you know, it's offering as close as we can get to a one-stop shop uh, place for people to come, you know, and uh, it's, yeah, it's been really uh, great to see the support that people have had and the care where people wanting to buy local and, you know, appreciating that it's from nearby farms and, and all that. So it's... Has, uh, Barry, has Michael Pollan come for a frozen chicken yet? <laughs> he he hasn't. I think he's still sitting on the one that I uh, left in a corner for him one day. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's been, you know, limit. every operation is limited. The production team, you know, is not not as many people on the floor at once you know distribution team is you know one person in the van instead of two so but you know it's uh we're we're adapting at this point and uh working our way back to production levels and you know primary focus on keeping everybody safe that's involved in every interaction great and evan like what what else is going on with you guys i mean you have barn beer you've got your hive group you've got so many things going on um you know, can I come drive in and pick up lobster? Are you still doing that? Yeah, well, I was I was about to say that we're we're starting, and uh, about every weekend or every other weekend, we're going to have some kind of food option on a Saturday. Um, this past weekend was wood fire pizza. Derek was awesome and and ran the whole thing while I played music and got drunk, um, which was very appreciated, Derek. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I was, everybody pulled up, we've numbered these barrels and we have quite a large uh, gravel parking lot. So you can come in and we've organized it. So these, these food vendors, all local food vendors have um, some type of online ordering process or app or whatever. And so you can pre-order or do it from your car while you pull up to barrel number one, barrel number two. Uh, you put in your order for food. You put in your order for beer to go. We're still not allowed to sell beer for on-site consumption. So you put in your order to go, and then you text that to my wife, Emily. And then uh, our uh, house elf, Derek, goes down to the to the brewery or it goes and communicates and becomes the liaison between them. So you don't even really have to leave your car. And people were, you know, uh, rolling down their windows to listen to me scream Americana at them. And, or they were, you know, like some people uh, set up in the back of their of their vehicles and and had a little picnic. It, it, you know, it, it was really great, and it did feel like the closest thing to um, to normal as we've had in quite a long time. And so we're planning to continue that. We're bringing that lobster truck back. We're doing a number of other um, uh, food vendors. That's great. We had walkie talkies. It was very official. Oh yeah, <laughs> it makes you want to go back in time. I should—it's like the '50s. I should go get a car and do drive-through, man. It sounds like the way yeah. to go. Derek, well, Derek had Derek's got a roller skate. Oh, I was gonna say we all jumped on the same joke, <laughs> Derek. The roller skates don't work so well on a gravel <laughs> farm drive uh, driveway. But uh, I just want to go back to Derek. So the fermented man. So you're living in the Hudson Valley, and you're—I yeah. see you're taking a lot of photos. Um, what, what are you writing? What, what, do you, what are you working on? You know, what are you thinking about? Well, after the Fermented Man, I uh, worked on hiking books for uh, a couple years. Uh, not not super related, obviously, but, you know, kind of different projects dealing with the natural world and in that realm of things, uh, which is, you know, I've always had a, a kind of broad set of interests, I guess. I mean, 
never set out to be specifically only a, like a beer guy. Um, so yeah, I've been, you know, trying to write about, uh, different things along that, that spectrum. Um, still doing, still doing hiking books, you know, uh, love being outside, getting in, into looking for mushrooms, uh, during quarantine. It's been a fun hobby. You know, anything that I can, uh, engage with the natural world, uh, it tends to, tends to be something that I gravitate towards. I saw you posted a photo of the Esopus Creek. Um, you know, in these times, it's so funny to think that, that that floods were a problem and anything that's happened to us in the last 20 years, somehow it doesn't seem so bad compared to what we're going through now. What do you think, Derek? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, uh, yeah, maybe I need to watch out for flooding because I do live near the creek. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's certainly a, a time to put things in perspective. But there's also been worse times, too. Yeah. Hey, um, Dan, I want to talk about, excuse sorry, guys, we're, we're remote. I'm in East Village. What, where are you, Evan? Poughkeepsie? I'm in Poughkeepsie. And yeah. where's Barry? Uh, I'm out in Ken. And where's Derek? Uh, near the Esopus Creek. So we're all out there. Um, Barry, um, I did, I remember when I first had Ken Falls, I don't know, was it five years ago or something? Um, the, the IPA was like what everyone was talking about. And then as of last summer from the New York City Brewers Choice event, I was really impressed with your low, like low alcohol pills. And I know that you 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 have the, uh, you know the Connecticut grown, regionally grown you know malts and things. Um, but but you're doing so many other styles. So just give us a breakdown of what you guys are actually doing at the brewery, and you know just an overview. So uh, in general, I think we're uh, the style we brew the most of is IPA. You know, one of the, one of the places where we saw, you know, when Derek and I started, we were kind of brewing uh, mixed fermentation, saisons and Brett IPAs. And, you know, the, and the two were kind of on a different sphere, different, uh, different track where like the farmhouse uh, from an ethos perspective was like, where all the local malt, the limited amount that we had at the time went. And eventually about six months in, we started brewing, some IPAs and those were, you know, conventional malt, not local, anything like that. Uh, wanting something clean, repeatable, and you know, um, it didn't feel like there was this like need to brew it with local malt at the time. Certainly, given our limited supply, and as we started doing these tastings with Andrea, and supply was really starting to grow, we were pushing for more of it, and they were, you know, monsters were pushing for us to use more of it. Um, you know, we kind of got to a point where seeing the growth of IPA that we had, you come to like, okay, well, we're, we're squeezing the places where we can use local malt given our tank space. So we really wanted to start using uh, local malt in our IPAs. And that, you know, kind of also, it makes you feel good about brewing any style, right? It's not just about what yeast you're using or hops you're using, you know, you're, you're, you're supporting the supply chain uh, by virtue of people drinking and consuming the beer on a fresher and more consistent basis than something like Evan was talking about where it takes, um, you know, uh, and that's not in a, in a negative way than something that is a much longer life cycle to the product. So uh, we brew probably 50, 60% of our beers IPA, and then the rest is split about 25% lager and 25% just call it farmhouse, you know, a mixed fermentation um, beers at this point. That's great. And Evan, for you, it's like, seems like I see barn beer everywhere when I can see it. But last year you had the Rose Hill beer too, that, that I really liked. 
Um, yeah. So w- w- what's in your cellars right now? Well, we're, we're trying to, I'm trying to, it's been a nice time to be able to reflect, you know, and the design of our brewery uh, has given me that a little bit of perspective, um, a little bit of space. And so I, I've been talking about kind of coming back with, with actually, you know, simplifying a lot of things. Like we love to work with local fruits and, you know, things we grow on the farm or working with Rose Hill Farm, which is an amazing uh, cidery uh, winemaking farm in Red Hook, New York. Um, but, you know, like I, I want to simplify the way we make beer in a lot of ways. And um, so going forward, I've just been working on starting out the gate from here. We're going to make basically three styles of beer is the goal. And one one style is barn beers. And then those are beers that are uh, very quickly fermented for us, which is, you know, four weeks in um, upright oak fooders and to the style of our, our standard barn beer, but then with the same similar recipe, but then they'll age longer on seasonal fruits and herbs and uh, botanicals. So, but that'll all be barn beer and all have a similar label that looks like a new barn beer label. And that's just all barn beers. So they're not going to be deeply acidic. They're going to be kind of a little bit hoppy, mostly funk driven, a little bit of oak. Um, you know, not super tart. And then we will, we're focusing on getting larger format barrels for spontaneous fermentation and doing more of a, I guess, an homage to Goose and and Lambic of the Zena Valley and have that sector of beers, which will be, you know, straight versions of those barrel blends or the, or the barrels themselves or the fooders themselves. And then that also aged on fruit or potentially botanicals. And then the third thing that I'm super excited about, and we've been talking about it though, all my friends are saying not to do it, but you know, that's been what they've always said about all the things we do is um, we're working on a lager cave and um, isolating with white labs a uh, lager yeast or a yeast that can ferment it at, at lower temperatures and, and be really productive and um, getting single cellular pitches, pitching into a lager cave and open oak, Hudson Valley oak pitch tanks with pitch, um, pine pitch, like the, like the uh, Bohemians would. And then doing a quick primary fermentation, much like they do also in um, Northwestern Germany and, 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 Cologne and Dusseldorf, and then going into lager tanks and then just serving that beer after, you know, uh, 48 weeks of aging in lager tanks directly in the tap room whenever this stuff is done. And so, it, and, and that would, and all these beers obviously are only with the six row organic malt that's grown in the Hudson Valley, malted by Dennis at Hudson Valley Malt, hops from the New York Hop Guild, uh, which are some really great, cool, like old world hops that are coming into our region right now and then and then fruits and 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 veggies and botanicals from our farm and then the farms you know that are within you know 20 miles well evan that that's really exciting because i remember i don't know was it six months ago a year ago you took a trip to germany you were in dusseldorf i saw you with the alt beer uh was that was that a research trip were you checking out different (laughs) types of german lagers I mean, I, w- I think it was a research. I went with um, Dan Suarez of Suarez Family Brewery and um, and Greg from, well, from Threes, and now he's back at Green uh, Point 
or green is that right green greenport yeah greenport yeah, he was running for mayor greg <laughs> 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 Doroski. um but we went out in january so this year actually um uh, which seems like a fucking thousand years ago but um it was just you know whatever that was i don't know five months ago and or less yeah, and, and we, we spent a, a, a long weekend, essentially, just trying to hit every single uh, little uh, brew pub of Dusseldorf and any of the respective beer halls of Cologne. Yeah. It was great. Well, I'm looking forward. When will your, your lagers be available? I mean, we're discussed, we're talking to, to tan, tank manufacturers and glycol or chiller manufacturers because we've never, in the seven years of being a brewery, uh, implemented chilling in any capacity other than having essentially a kegerator. So we've never had a walk in, we've never chilled tanks. Um, so there's that aspect of these horizontal lagering tanks that we're, we're talking to people about, but it seems like people are, uh, or at least manufacturers are eager to pull the trigger on selling something. Cause I feel like they've been hurting. And, um, yeah, I mean, if we could get it going sooner or later, I'm doing te- test batches of this stuff this week. So, uh, let's say by the fall, Jimmy, come up here. We'll have a beer. Yeah. Maybe side pulled. I'm thinking <laughs> side pulled straight out of the tank, you know, like a, like the old check style. Yeah, you're onto something. Um, have you had Notch Brewing out of uh, Salem, Massachusetts? Uh, most definitely. Chris yeah, Loring, yeah. Fan. Yeah, no, I, I think this winter a lot of people, um, you saw more uh, black lagers, and I, I do feel that I, I like seeing, that's why when I saw you with the Alt Beer in Dusseldorf, I remember I had a customer who, who was, she was worked in a really good restaurant, so she had a pretty good palate. And she would come in and look at, this is like four years ago, look at all of our, you know, mostly hoppy, beers on draft and she would always pick out uh, the Uriga out beer because she just wanted that that malty uh characteristic Uriga. Uriga. yeah that was that was the by far the uh, best uh, alt beer in dusseldorf by far they they have the um christoph who's the uh who's the brewer at uh wine Schiffaner, or the head of brewing operations came in about five six years ago and there, it's it was amazing. We had a nice tour of that. Miko um, from McKellar set it up through Dan. I'm not that cool, but um, and we had a nice a nice tour of it. And you know, they use a copper cool ship. They use all these. I mean, it's mind blowing. It's baffling their process. Like it's the how fast they turn around primary fermentation. How long they let it lager how close these beers are to, you know, uh, alt beer being like, it's almost, uh, you know, a, a British beer. It's almost, it's like a lager bitter of sorts. And then the, to see how close, you know, this ale called Kolsch is, you know, uh, is correlated to lager as well. I mean, it was, it was really fascinating. Um, and we had some cool experiences, but Uriga, uh, definitely in Dusseldorf, number one. And then, uh, Pofkin, Kolsch, I think, is probably the best Kolsch in um, in Cologne. If I had to rate them, I like rating <laughs> things. I like the Kolsch style a lot too. Um, you know, so how are you going to set up your lagering cave? I mean, w- w- was there a model that you saw, or are you just going to patch it together well, with technology? You know, traditionally, you just take a chisel to a bluff. But um, I, I, we, I think we're we have a partial subterranean like a third floor of our barn or cellar where the cool ship is and everything. Um, 
is subterranean and it is entirely subterranean on one side because it's kind of pitched down through the hill. And we were talking about just building out that kind of subterranean side and just putting in one to two or the, you know, this one Hudson Valley Oak 10 barrel uh, open fermenter I have and pitching it. So it's, you know, it's got more of a consistency and of uh, microflora or lack thereof for this purpose and then doing a primary fermentation and, 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 you know, 50 to 60 degrees, which it will stay year round and then transferring to temperature controlled horizontal tanks for lagering and then serving directly out of those tanks. So then having, you know, more of a Keller beer than anything, something that would have sediment and have, um, it would be very non-filtered is the idea and to only serve it on premise. And I've talked to some of my friends about it and uh, brewer, brewing friends, and they're like, "This is why would you focus on something that's, that's you know lager? It's not expensive, and then also it's expensive to install this infrastructure for on-premise sales." And I'm like, uh, "You know, because it's what I want to do, and because it goes really well with, with with your band when you play music, right? You can drink a lot, right, drink the old school lagers. Hey, let's just go to Derek. Um, we're going to take a break in a minute, but." Derek, so, you know, having worked at both places, I mean, this is a, you know, generic question, but, you know, how do you compare the, the operations of each? I mean, they're, they're both pretty much based on a farm. Um, and I'm more interested in, in your role when you come in. Like, you know, are you tweaking things? Are you scraping, you know, yeast off of plants or something? Yeah, I'm uh, at both places. Essentially, I was a plant scraper. Uh, <laughs> 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 that that doesn't really change. That's as more or less. I think uh, I've established that's my role in life. Uh, no, I mean the, you know uh, main difference is uh, between Evan and Barry. Evan usually wins the arm wrestling competitions, um, oh, but Barry wins the basketball competitions. Barry does win the <laughs> basketball competitions, though. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, you know it's a. Uh, a little, a little column A, a little column B. Which is here. better? Which is better, Derek? Say it right now. <laughs> I'm just um, yeah, I don't have a joke for that. Yeah, see, <laughs> that's why we, we went into this because we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few <laughs> minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. 
You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. Learn more at square.com slash go slash beer sessions. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special pandemic remote recording. We've got Barry from Kent Falls in Connecticut, Evan from Plan B in the Hudson Valley, New York, and Derek, the fermented man, also in the Hudson Valley, New York. So, Evan, what are you guys drinking? Uh, I was drinking one of our barn beers. I haven't been drinking much um, this this pandemic. I've lost 22 pounds as of today from not drinking. Um, but I'm bragging now. But the uh, first beer I had was a one of our barn beers with lime in it. I just put a couple slices of lime in my glass, which was good. And now I'm on to a Pet Nat Cabernet Franc from Ben Marl Winery, which is right across... Actually, the grapes are from the Finger Lakes, but Ben Marl is right across the river. That's pretty good. Great. Barry, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking uh, probably our newest beer uh, called Superscript. Um, it's kind of echoing on what uh, Evan was talking about before about like simplifying certain things. You know, in the in producing a lot of different IPAs, you know, we. We never really had one that we produce all the time or a flagship of any sort. And uh, we recently came out this year with this beer, Superscript, where you know we've worked for five years on securing and identifying and knowing what malts we like to brew with, working directly with farms and establishing that close-knit supply chain. And we've started to try and do it with hops. So we get actually New York Cascades from New York Hop uh, Guild for the beer as well as Strata from Indie Hops out in Oregon and uh, some small kind of hops that we get from directly from a farm in Michigan as well. And, you know, it's the first beer where we can really say we've been able to produce it, uh, you know, or IPA, where all the hops, all the malt is direct from the farm. And our plan is to produce it year-round, you know, make it available. And, you know, it feels... It's the beer is great. It's got this like somewhere between hibiscus, pineapple, grapefruit, uh, hop character, um, with a combination of thrall and valley malt. But you know, in some ways, it feels weird to say an IPA is like one of our biggest risks we've taken in a while. But to have something that is you know produced regularly, local malt, hops directly from the farm, distributed and not brewery only. Um, you know, it's a it's a really exciting challenge to kind of take on to take you know this and launch into also working much more closely with hop farms for all of our beers as we do malt and you know the next five or whatever years that we're open. That's great. That's really cool, uh, Barry. Because it, sorry, Jimmy, but it, it, that reminds me of the advent of craft beer in the West Coast and you know places like Sierra Nevada and, and Anchor Steam, like sourcing local malts and and hops to create something like it it seems interesting that in a way that um this is giving us an opportunity to 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 be cyclical yeah you know i mean i think the 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 thing that struck me most or one of the things that struck me most about working really closely with monsters is that like a lot of it comes down to scale like they can't get by with 
a handful of breweries making a handful of small batch, small specialty, call it beers. It's like, it's gotta be something that the supply chain really supports. And, you know, we saw that with the growth of our IPAs and translating that more to like, we want a consistent IPA where, you know, it simplifies our operation a great deal. And we don't have to think, or it's not, we don't have to think about, but like, we know we're making this and there's different goals in mind with producing the same thing week in, week out and a way to test ourselves, but also really putting those values to where it's distributed, it's out of the market, like, you know, um, trying to show that these things are possible, not just that beer can be made with local malt, which I'm thankful, or a great beer can be made with local malt, which I'm thankful so many people are proving on a consistent basis, you know? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's great, man. Hey, Derek, what are you drinking, buddy? Well, Barry, we actually uh, kind enough to... I stopped by Ken Falls last week to pick up some beer for my parents, and Barry was kind enough to give me some of that superscript, which is uh, quite delightful. Um, good job there, Barry. Um, Thanks, man. And uh, what's the the smoked beer? I, I could lie and pretend I'm literally drinking it right now, but I'm not. <laughs> uh, the uh, Be Smoked, is that what it's called? The Smoke, yeah. Yeah, but, oh, The Smoke, yeah. Um, really awesome. I mean, I... Uh, I've always been a proponent for smoked beers. Unfortunately, uh, no consumers like them, but uh, they seem to be one of those kind of brewer-only styles. But this is a really excellent smoked beer. You know, it's not too overtly like uh, over-the-top smoky. You know, like drinking melted bacon. Um, I think one of the reasons why smoked beers are hard to sell is one of those things where we always tend to gravitate towards the extreme ends of the spectrum. A lot of smoked beers that consumers tried in the like first 10 years craft beer were just like, you know, that that melted bacon, super over the top barbecue-y. Uh, smoke can be very subtle, too. It can be a lot lighter, more refined, and this is more on the end of or that end of the spectrum. So something I really enjoy refreshing and can be. So, uh, Derek, you, you, you really can just enjoy. put a, li- a little bit of smoke malt into a beer, give it a little more character. Well, yeah, and actually, I mean, some of the uh, some of the traditional styles are not really intended to be that smoky in the first place. It it it's not really always the percentage of smoke malt you're using. It's often just the type of smoke malt. Uh, different smoke malts have different you know expressions, different characters, same as any other malt or uh, you know roasted malts are, are along a spectrum. Hops are along a spectrum. Kind of same with smoke malt. Um, so, like, some of the styles that I always enjoyed brewing are, like, uh, traditional grotzers, um, using, like, oak smoke, oak smoked wheat malt, a bit of a tongue twister, I guess. Um, it traditionally, it's 100% oak smoked wheat malt, but it's not, like, you would think, oh, it's 100% smoked malt, that must be incredibly over the top, but it's not. It's actually a really refined, kind of softer um, flavor profile that makes for a beer that's traditionally lower ABV, you know, softer and mouthfeel. Um, and it's got, just got like kind of an earthy, like uh, I'm blanking on better words to describe it than earthy, but it's not like that, you know, crazy over the top smoke character. It's something that's actually like kind of weirdly refreshing. And if you didn't put in someone's head uh, beforehand, the word smoke, they might not use that word to describe it. You also did the toasted hay beer, correct? Oh, yeah, that's like- right. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could throw that in there. I mean, yeah, toasted sort At of. Ken yeah. Falls. Yeah, yeah, we did two of them: a uh, porter and a grisette. 
So if, if you're doing a little toasting or smoking, can you then put in less hops? Like, how does it work when you're balancing out your beers? Uh, yeah, I guess, uh, I don't know, Barry and Evan can contradict me here if if they want. I mean, I feel like smoked beers tend to probably be a little less hop forward. I, I, I feel like the bitterness would probably clash with the um, the smokiness a bit. I'm trying to think of any smoked beers that, I but... guess, brats are... Grazer actually is traditionally somewhat fairly hoppy, but it's it's uh, a with kind of noble lighter. hops. Yeah, yeah right. Right. Like, that one sorry. with Tetnang, and it it worked yeah. really well together. Yeah, Tetnang. Tetnang has that like kind of piney character that actually goes really well with that. Again, it's not a it's not the type of smoke character that most consumers probably think of. It's a more of an earthy character, so the piney hot profile actually matches with that really well. Uh, sorry to go Evan. It's okay. Get in there. But um, yeah, if you look back to like Shanker a Bamberg brewery famous for smoky beer, their Martzen probably the most infamous for bacon flavor. Uh, those beers when consumed fresh, I mean, they're essentially, they do a Martzen, a Doppelbach, they do a Helles, they do all these things that are, are traditional German styles of beer, which are fairly highly hopped, with things like Hallertau or Tenanger, these noble hops that come, uh, you know, that grow well in the Bavarian region, and they are, you know, in Bamberg, and they and they're, you know, they're like sixty-minute hop additions and thirty-minute hop additions, bittering hops through them, uh, pretty normal recipes. I think we we encounter those beers generally when they've sat on a, um, you know, like a, a beer warehouse shelf for a long time, and then they just taste like bacon through a combination of oxidation and then the, and the beechwood smoked malt. But the malt, even at, at uh, you know, Shanker La, is that it's not intentionally smoked that much. You know, it's it's just the byproduct. Like I think about also like the great brewery in Virginia called Pendruid um, that makes a lot of amazing spontaneous beers and farmhouse beers, the Brothers Carney out there. Their first, they were, um, they just made beers from local ingredients, and their first maltster was kilning over a, uh, you know, like a basically an, a cast iron wood stove, and so all the beers had this element of smoke, but that's because that's the fuel source. So, like, I think throughout history, like the fuel source, whether it be dung or wood or whatever it was, or peat were the things that were imparting flavors, but probably not intentionally. And I think when those beers are consumed, consumed fresh, you see thousands of people in beer gardens drinking Shankerla Martzen, whereas you get it off the shelf and drink it here in the States, and people are like, oh, gross, it tastes like uh, sugary bacon or whatever. I don't know. Like, uh, smoke is, is, is a very... Uh, it's a beautiful thing in small portions, but I think as it oxidizes, it, it, it gets accentuates, is my point. I don't know. And Barry, do you want to say anything else about the besmoked beer? Yeah, it was great. We worked so uh, we was a collaboration with uh, our friend Jeff, who runs at the corner in Connecticut. It's one of the better craft beer bars. It was where Derek and I like delivered the first beer Ken Falls made, you know, on a Tuesday at like 10 p.m. or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, they've been one of our, probably our best customer for five years here and, uh, always talked about doing a beer together. He recently started, um, hindsight barbecue, uh, side business where, you know, he's been smoking at, uh, smoking meat and making barbecue for people. And it's really great. And he brought over, uh, his smoker when we were doing our first cool ship run this summer 
and we test smoked some spelt and loved the way it came out and decided to make a beer with it. So it was a smoked spelt lager, uh, a custom, a, bes- a bespoke. <laughs> bespoke. Yeah. That came yeah, through, yeah. and that's a real clever name, Barry. So let's go, Evan. Um, you guys, so a couple weeks ago, we had a really great Saison farmhouse show with Phil Markowski from Two Roads, and you know he wrote the book, Farmhouse Sales. Um, Never heard of it. What I want to yeah, <laughs> ask you guys is, you know, these terms, Saison, farmhouse, you use barn beer, Suarez uses country beer. Um, wh- is there a style, you know, it, it, I love saisons, but I never see saisons proper. Let's talk about saisons, farmhouse, country beer, all that. Evan, I don't speak French. <laughs> well, you will now. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what a saison is. But um, yeah, I mean, I I'm making beer. I've said this probably too many times on your show alone, Jimmy. But you know, I'm making beer from a place. Um, the malt six row barley grown less than 20 miles from here for all the beers well water mixed culture i cultivate seasonally from our beehives hops from the hudson valley um i'm making a beer and and then fermenting this barn that i can barely control anymore with its microbial presence so all you know no temperature correction all um cool ship cooled throughout the year so i don't know like the beer i make is the beer that comes from that barn it's barn beer to me so i mean i'm not gonna shit on anybody's um parade or anybody's labeling of anything you know i uh people can call beer whatever they want to call it and the beer is awesome like the less i drink beer which has been a lot lately the more i love beer and beer is great. So if you want to call it, you can call it whatever you want. Like, I, I'm not concerned with the labeling of it. For me, it's barn beer because the the purpose in, of our business and our beer, even though we've been distributing a lot lately and not been able to have people come and experience the farm and me and everything. But the purpose of the beer is it's just, you know, it's, it's bait and a trap to get people to come here and have a good time and remember that experience, you know, when they're back in their, they came up from Brooklyn, they're back in their apartment and, and Park Slope, they're washing their hair. They smell the cherry wood smoke. You know, they think about Ron the goat and his broken leg. I mean, that's, that's what I'm trying to get. Right. And they smell that barn in the beer. And that's the greatest compliment I get. And I get it all the time. Like this does smell like the barn. It reminds me of this sense of place. And I think if you talk about those beers, you know, you can delineate farther back from the nucleus, but the nucleus is, is the place where it's created. And then you can startly or start to slightly walk back away from that to the fields in which it's created. But all of that becomes a community. And if there's a time in which we understand community greater than in my entire life it's this time and so for me a barn beer is is that sense of a community and you can have it in china you can have it anywhere but it brings you back to that moment that 360 degrees of a farm the 360 degrees of a glass you know it's that's that's that moment that's what i'm trying to do with barn beer um, and so in terms of farmhouse beers, I think they have a strong nucleus. And I think that they're, the things around them that are surrounding them that are creating that nucleus are very tight to it, as opposed to, you know, the general consensus of craft beer being, you know, New Zealand, Belgium, London, whatever it is, the importing of ingredients. I think 
whatever farmhouses or Saison or, or barn beer or country beer or, or valley beer or whatever you want to call it. It just means we're bringing that, that exterior, that like Saturn's ring, that whatever that other circumference is of, of, of supplying ingredients, we're bringing that back close to the nucleus. That's the point. And, 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 and in doing so, you represent a place. So that, that was like in the 19th century, you had a certain kind of water, you made bass in England, right? Local yeah. ingredients. Hey, let's go to Barry. Barry, so your farm, talking about farms, your farm, the original farm was, was pretty old. Tell us the backstory of that farm and, and um, sustainable practices that you guys are doing. So uh, our farm was, I think, originally homesteaded somewhere around like 1710. Uh, the, there's an old farmhouse on the property, you know, the original bones of it are still from, you know, uh, the original structure. Uh, and it was a family farm through, I think the early 1980s, uh, the camp family, which were on camps road named after them, you know, had more or less this four or 500 acres, uh, that was theirs. And over the years they raised pigs, chickens, cows, you name it as just what they raised and ate. And then they sold lumber. They did anything you needed to do to keep the farm a farm and make money in between 1710 and 1980. And about 1980, they sold the property to another family who started a dairy farm. And uh, they ran that until, or yeah, they ran that until 2012. And when we moved on to the farm and uh, one of my partners purchased the land. So since then, we've been raising chickens on pasture. We've done pasture-raised pork as well. Uh, we have uh, a small hop yard uh, and berry patches that we grow fruit in. And uh, a lot of it is just about, you know, the cyclical nature where, you know, we, we grow hops, we use it in a beer, we'll throw it in our compost pile. All of our spent grain from the local farms that we get it from in the area is composted and then returned to the hop yard. And, you know, kind of the one of the original inspirations was this like, rotational cyclical means in which the inputs become outputs um you know for our business so you know we've got i mean sustainability wise we've got solar panels for electricity and uh solar hot water as well that feeds our brew house so we try and be as carbon neutral as possible but you know it's pretty tough all things considered uh, as a brewery yeah. So, you know, long way to go. Well, you guys have been great. I'm going to wrap, I'm going to ask one question of each of you. Um, so, uh, English beer historian Martin Cornell, uh, he asked breweries and pubs to take a minute and think about what you're doing during COVID um, that's different to, for him to put down for, you know, as a historian. Is there one item or one, one thing that you're doing that you'd like to record for history that you're only doing because of COVID? I know it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an okay question, but <laughs> the thing that we're doing because of COVID for for in running our pubs, yeah, sure, whatever. It it it's really a, supposed to be an inspirational question, but <laughs> <laughs> we're uh, we're a very inspiring group, English I mean, beer I, historians. You know, I I think. It's it's about like doubling down on that supporting your community, you know, like Evan was th saying and we've talked about the whole time, you know, the thing that uh, has been shown nationally and internationally, whatever throughout this is that like supply chains are broken, right? You know, I call a supermarket that carries our beer and they're like, you know, I can't get pasta. So I called a local 
hundred-year-old pasta company in Connecticut, and these old guys are now working around the clock to make sure that supermarkets they never dealt with can have pasta on the shelf for people around. And you know, we Evan works entirely with a local supply chain. All of our malt comes from local farms. You know, it's it's doubling down on your communal relationships and trying to be there to support the people behind and ahead of you in a supply chain. You know, and that means different things for different people. But, you know, it's it's all we can do right now. And, you know, it, it yeah, that's that's what I would say. No, that's good. I just I, I would say I'd piggyback on that. And I guess I'd say that, you know, community is the essence of our era of beer. You know, you have me and Barry and Derek, who's worked with me and Barry on currently. And our design of breweries, you know, has to do with the, um, a very small sense of community. And I, I really love entertaining people. I love people coming here. And, and the thing I, I miss so much, you know, it, it gets overwhelming at some points and you forget about it, but when it's good, but when it's bad, we're a community. I mean, we are, we've evolved as a community. That's what we are as a people, regardless of where we came from in the world and our evolutionary background, we evolve together and with um, partnerships and companionships and there's no better place. And I think that's what this British fellow is probably alluding to, but there's no better place to communicate with your friends, with your community than a pub, than a place with a beer. You know, that's, I mean, you sit outside at a table and you get a beer that's a little bit hoppy and it gets the light struck. That's letting light in. That's letting light into the whole world. And, and that you consume that light. And uh, I think community is probably the, the thing that I am missing the most. And I think we need to get back to it as soon as possible. Well, that's brilliant, guys. And then, Derek, back to the Fermented Man book. Um, yeah. what, what would you recommend that everyone learn how to make? during this time at home <laughs> um yeah, toilet paper is a good one uh, <laughs> I, I mean uh, it's a, it is a great time for foraging getting to know your uh the, the land around your you know wh- wherever you live not everyone i guess is obviously lucky enough to live uh you know like on these gorgeous farm properties or near nature preserves but uh e- even in cities or, or towns you know there's some natural environment where you can kind of um learn the land better learn yeah i've just been walking around trying to get better at like tree identification things like that that you know you can use that to hunt for mushrooms and forage in in a variety of ways um and a lot of that can you know obviously pretty much anything can be fermented so like i think that's a great approach this time of year during this particular situation is just kind of trying to uh, understand the world around you a little better um and uh you know and that can help you look at it more sustainably too like i wholeheartedly agree with everything barry and evan is saying about you know the supply chains and community and kind of reevaluating reevaluating where our food comes from like it's a potentially very dangerous you know situation that we're kind of offered a glimpse into through this is you know how fragile supply chains are and this world uh, predicated upon capitalism where we don't really have any idea where our food comes from most of the time. So kind of reevaluating that and trying to uh, better understand, you know, the world around you, I think the good thing to, uh, to do during this. Well, thank you guys so much. And Evan promised a, a pretty good troop of conversationalists. So thank you guys. And, and I, I'll just so you know, guys, 
Um, I once, when I was 18, I traveled across Turkey and we did not have toilet paper at all. So <laughs> uh, that's another survival show. What do you do without toilet paper? Yeah. <laughs> that's another show, guys. So, hey, thanks so much for joining me. Everybody say their name and their, and their place one more time and we'll close out. Uh, Evan Watson, Plan B Farm Brewery. <laughs> Barry LeBenz, Ken Falls Brewing Company. Derek Dellinger, uh, Nebulous, uh, Esopus Creek and writer Esopus Creek. That's your new name, bro. Esopus Creek. And uh, thanks to our producer Dylan Hoyer, who's produced and put this together for us. Engineer back home, uh, Matt Patterson. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Cinema. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.